Today the reading is from Micah chapter 7 verses 8 to 20 which can be found inside the, inside the pamphlet. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my cause and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day the people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain, the earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants and as the result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest, in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name's John Forsyth. I have the great privilege of being the vicar here at St Jude and a very warm welcome if this is your first time either here in the building or online. We are delighted that you can be with us and hope you get the chance to stay and enjoy a barbecue. I'm sure it would be cooked fine by teenagers. They always know what they're doing, according to most teenagers I speak to, so I'm sure it would be great. But it's good that we can also be fed from God's word this morning. Micah, in a way, is a bit of a one-hit wonder. And what I mean by that is, There is one verse in Micah which everybody knows just about and the rest of the books are kind of a bit of a mystery. Does anyone have a guess? This is a non-rhetorical question. Anyone want to have a go at that one verse which everyone knows from Micah? Chapter 6, verse 8. Does anyone memorise? I'm sure people have memorised it, right? What does the Lord require of you to? Excellent. Now, can anyone uh, summarise another verse they've memorised from Micah? Everyone, there we go, nice, there we go. There are a few, but it is a a book of the Bible which, uh, uh, for good reasons, has made this verse a, a really powerful verse. And it is a powerful verse, but it's really important we see the broader picture. And as we come to the end of looking at the book of Micah, what we've seen throughout the journey is that verse it's in a bigger narrative of hope through judgment. Of hope through judgment. That requirement for God's people to act in that character is to reflect the character of the God who brings hope 
through judgment. And what we see as we final, uh, finally finish this uh, amazing uh, prophet, we see that Micah does a bit of reflection and he gives four reasons why he has hope in spite of this quite severe judgment. And I hope that they will be four reasons that you and I have hope as well. The first is in verses 8 to 10 where we see that Micah has hope because the Lord is the light in the darkness. The Lord is the light in the darkness. And notice as we read through those verses, verses 8 to 10, how Micah displays two things at the same time. He, he, dis, he displays what I call a bold brokenness. A bold brokenness and at the same time a bold confidence. A brokenness, that is he's open about his own sin and confidence, he, he's openly confident in the gracious forgiveness and mercy of God. Now, and when we speak uh, in our culture about darkness, it's often a, a symbol of an internal reality, perhaps of ignorance or perhaps of, of, de- of being depressed or deeply saddened or broken. But when we see the idea of darkness in the Bible, what we see is it's actually symbolising an external reality of God's judgement. Darkness is a sign of judgment. And we see that, of course, really powerfully at Jesus' death, where darkness comes over the whole land. It's important we understand that element of darkness when we read what Micah says in verses 8 and 9 properly. He says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Though I sit in darkness... Under God's judgment, God will also be my light. Bold brokenness and bold confidence. He sits in darkness. Why? Verse 9. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. See, bold brokenness, being honest about our failings and our sin, we don't minimise sin's ugliness. We don't downplay a terrible offence it is to God. We don't say, look, God can't get angry at us. Instead, like Micah, we are called to tremble in the darkness, to be shaken by God's displeasure at our sin, to be sorry and deeply remorseful. That is what bold brokenness is. It is not seeking to hide who we are. But notice too, this bold brokenness is paired with bold confidence. Micah never loses confidence in the grace of God, but boldly believes that this God who has brought judgment in darkness will be the same God who brings light in restoration and forgiveness and righteousness. There's the dynamic of grace at work. Micah is teaching us here that there's no such thing as cheap grace. If we are understand grace, we need to be boldly open about our sin and boldly open and confident in God's grace. Bonhoeffer famously said that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, it's communion 
without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the, cro- without the cross. Grace without the Lord Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And so what Micah is powerfully doing is not just reminding those first hearers of his word, but indeed us now, that we need to be people both of bold brokenness and people of bold confidence. People who are open about our sinfulness and people who delight in the light of the gospel. The hope we have is this, although I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. That is a powerful hope. Secondly, the reason Micah has hope is, he says in verses 11 to 14, that the Lord is shepherd to his people. Uh, In this picture of hope, Micah describes the people as a flock of sheep. Sounds rather, you know, less exciting to be called a sheep. Uh, They're returning to God who is their shepherd. And this, this imagery of God's people as a sheep has a long history in the Old Testament. This is not a new metaphor, it's a really common one. Look what, look what our Micah writes in verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. In other words, it's a flock that personally belongs to God. It's not just some random sheep which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Basham and Gilead as in days ago. Notice as you read through those verses, this little phrase, this day or the day, occurs again and again and again. The day for building walls will come, the day for extending boundaries. In that day the people will come to you. There is a future promised day where where this promise will be absolutely and completely fulfilled. And notice too, promise that is a promise here, it will be a truly international event. Forget the World Cup, right? This is next level. All the nations come to be part of the people of God, to this new Jerusalem. In that day, people will come to you, says verse 12, from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. These are countries which were God's enemies, uh, were the enemies of God's people. Now they're becoming part of God's people. Even from Egypt to the Euphrates, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The nations are gathering and what we see here is like a reverse of the Tower of Babel where the nations are scattered and dispersed as an act of judgment. Here God gathers them and cares for them from every tribe and tongue and nationality as his people. And notice too, Jerusalem will get bigger and better. Now Jerusalem, if you've ever been there, you'll notice it's a city kind of shaped by its walls. The walls design how big it is. A bit like how Melbourne, our tram system determines how big we are, right? if you're inside the hipster-proof fence of the tram line. But the promise here is that the walls will get bigger and bigger. The day for building your walls will come and extending your boundaries. In other words, it's going to get bigger and larger, but also more fertile, more fruitful, more beautiful. Notice that the flock live itself in a forest, in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Basham and Gilead as in days long ago. Now, we don't, like, because we don't know what Basham and Gilead, what we need to understand is those two places were famous for being the go-to beauty spot uh, of uh, ancient Israel. And they were known for two things in particular, 
this is what I read up on, splendid trees and fat cows. If you like a splendid tree and a fat cow, well, the place to go is Basham and Gilead. Airbnb rating, five out of five stars, the cows were fat and the trees were splendid. It's a symbol of the place to go in an agricultural society. Think of the Yarra Valley and Wilson's Prom and Ligon Street, uh, a land flowing with gelato and lattes. That's the kind of modern Melbourne equivalent uh, of these two cities. Can you see the picture of abundant blessing? It's not just of, of back to what Israel were. No, it's bigger and better and more beautiful and more blessed. And notice too, there'll be a future king who will come and shepherd this bigger and more beautiful city with its diverse people. The shepherd will uh, shepherd your people with your staff. Here is a promise of a Messiah, a king, a shepherd king who will come and restore Jerusalem and he'll guide his people with a staff. It's a symbol of leadership and guidance obviously because that's how you kind of gently direct sheep, right? But also there was a great promise back in Genesis 49.10 about a certain ruler with a staff. This is Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom he belongs and he shall, sorry, and shall come to be the obedience of the nations. In other words, there's a promise back in Genesis of this king who will have a staff to whom all the nations will become obedient. Now, this amazing uh, prophecy, of course, links us back to King David, but of course, at Micah's time, it points forward to Jesus, who is the good shepherd, who leads his people out and gives them life and life eternal. So, uh, Micah gives us hope in that we have one who is the shepherd to his people. Thirdly, notice that the Lord is God over the nations. And this is from verses 15 to 17. And notice here, Micah points us in two directions. He looks forward and he looks backwards at the same time. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. As in the days, that's the past, I will show you my, uh, them my wonders. That's the future. And back in the days of Egypt is the story of the Exodus with Pharaoh and the plagues and Moses and uh, turned into a musical that's made into movies. It is the big story of God rescuing his people in the Old Testament. Uh, and that story of the Exodus wasn't just a huge historical event, it was interwoven in the culture of God's people. It was passed down from one generation to the next. It was reenacted in their liturgical worship during the Passover. It was a constant source of encouragement in times of darkness and despair as well as a challenge to repent in times of disobedience. In other words, it shaped who they were as a people. It was their story. And Micah is saying, just like during the Exodus, your current sin and coming judgment won't stop you from being God's people. It won't stop you from seeing God's wonders. It won't stop you from being rescued by your shepherd. You've seen God do it before and you will see another exodus. 
There is hope through judgment, says Micah. An exodus will occur again, but it will be greater and a more profound rescue. And the whole world will be shocked into silence in verse 14. The nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. And here what Mike is using, he's using the nations as a symbol of human pride at its most defiant. Human arrogance at its most determined. Human attempts to rule without, without reference, let alone worship, of the one who made them. And the result is they come trembling out of their dens in 17 and they will turn in fear to the Lord our God and be afraid of you. And this, this hope that Micah has, I think, is a helpful reminder when we look at our world and we're disheartened. We watch the news and we see nation rising up against nation. We see injustice. We see brokenness. And it seems like there's no hope. It seems like evil just keep prosper, keeps prospering. And Micah reminds us, have The Lord is God over the nations and he will bring redemption and justice. There will be a day of reckoning on that day. Have hope. Fourthly, Micah extraordinarily and powerfully reminds us in verses 18 to 20 that the Lord is the one and only Saviour. See, if the Lord is the light in the darkness and shepherd to his people and God over the nations, it's not surprising to hear Micah uh, proclaim, not complain, proclaim in verse 18, who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. It's this wonderful character of mercy. The Hebrew word is hesed. It means kind of a, an unchanging, always faithful, overwhelming covenantal love. It's at the heart of who God is. And it's to be at the heart of his people. See, why are we to, quote the most famous verse in Micah, do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with God? Well, because we are to reflect the character of the God we come and worship. That is who he is. God does justice and love and mercy. And you become what you worship. You become what you worship. And see the result of this mercy and love in verse 19? You will again have compassion on us, says Micah. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the seas. Uh, The Challenger Deep is the deepest known point in our world's oceans. It's uh, 11 kilometres underwater by the time you get to the bottom. Uh, And on the 23rd of January 1960, the deep sea submarine uh, Trieste, carrying the famous Jacques Picard, 
pardon my French, and an American called Don Walsh, that's an exciting name, uh, they reached the bottom, 11 kilometres. It took something like four or five hours to descend. They reached the deepest point in our Earth's ocean. And only a few more have been there since. In fact, did you know it's, a miracle, it's amazing? More people have walked on the moon than have been to the deepest point in our own ocean. That is how out of reach it is. Elon Musk isn't sending someone down to, to the bottom of the ocean. NASA's not sending someone down. It's easier to go to the moon. See what God is saying? That is how far your sins are taken away from you. Forget the moon, child's play. You have a better chance of putting on a snorkel, a mask and flippers and then diving 11 kilometres down. A better chance of doing that than your sins remaining unforgiven. That is how far God has taken them from you. And my question is, do you know that? Because I think sometimes we feel that God has just put them around the corner, right? They're still, they're, they're near, they're just a little bit out of sight, but you know they're lurking. And they're, and they're waiting for that moment to remind you of them. And you'll say, oh, they're my sins, they've come back. No, they're not coming back. They're not lurking around the corner. God has completely and utterly removed them. No, you are forgiven if you are in Christ. Every sin. Uh, during the Jewish New Year, which is called Rosh Hashanah, the Orthodox Jews will go to a, a stream or river and they symbolically empty their pockets into the water and they recite Micah 7, 18-20. It's called a, a Tashlik service and it means literally the first few words, you shall cast. It's a reminder that we cast our sins into the, the extraordinary and bottomless depths of God's grace. Because the point that Micah is making is God is the only one who can deal with our sin problem. Notice how Micah keeps kind of reminding of this. He says, you will again have compassion. You will tread our sins underfoot. You will be faithful. Not, I will help you do it or you can do it on your own. It is God's merciful act from beginning to end. It is God and God alone who removes sin, which is such a freeing and hopeful truth. And unlike uh, the Orthodox Jew, we actually know how God does this. We know how he's able to take our sins all the way to the bottom of the ocean and leave them there. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that you and I deserve to stay sitting in the darkness. To face the judgment of God for our sins. But in the Lord Jesus, God treats us with compassion. He, he treads our sins underfoot. Like he's squashing it and destroying it. And there's hints all the way back to Genesis 3. God is faithful when we are not. And as being reminded as we come to our Advent season and Christmas, 
It is God who sent his son to take on our flesh. And it's God who sent his son to sit in our darkness. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, he took all of our sin to the cross. All of our sin. And it has been dealt with there. See, God does not condemn sin just by overlooking it. God doesn't belong to the she'll be right mate school of dealing with sin because sin is too serious. He's a holy and righteous God. No, sin does not escape condemnation. You are not just let off with a kind of scold, don't do it again. No, your sin is completely judged and therefore there's no condemnation. There is no darkness for those who sit in the light of Christ. Your sins lay at the bottom of the ocean, out of reach. What an extraordinary hope. There is nothing you have done that is beyond the reach of God's grace. What this means is you can join in with the great hymn writer Charles Wesley who sang or helped us sing No condemnation now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head clothed in righteousness divine and then he says bold I approach the eternal throne not shyly I approach or or awkwardly or in fear of my life I approach bold confidence and claim the crown through Christ my own. Brothers and sisters, this is the basis of our deepest and longest lasting hope. Truly, the Lord is our one and only Saviour. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song that reflects this great and wonderful truth that our God is mighty to save. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this amazing book of Micah. A book which reveals to us your holy character, your righteous anger and your bottomless mercy. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression? You do not stay angry forever but delight in showing mercy. Amen.